Good morning. It brings me such joy to see all the college students here, just because it makes me reminisce of five years ago when I was a freshman coming to this church, and I can't even begin to express how much the discipleship and teaching of this church has nourished my faith and taught me of the Good Shepherd. So thank you, Dr. Campbell, elders, and people of this church. In the life of the church and being a Christian, perhaps nothing is more painful than watching someone who seems to check all the boxes for Christianity walk away from the faith. Just leave. Give up. Stop fighting. When I was a freshman at Anderson, there was a man who was involved with a campus ministry on campus. Uh, I didn't know him super well, but he seemed to be a really solid guy. Uh, he, when he was a student at the school, he actually attended RUF, I came to learn. Um, and he worked with BCM when I came. I spoke with him several times, but I had friends who were mentored by him. And then one summer after my freshman year, he left the ministry. He left his wife for a man, and he disappeared. And I heard that he uh, became vehemently against Christianity after that summer. It was very painful for all my friends who were mentored by him. For a biblical example, think of Judas, the one who walked with Christ for years. He, he was one of the twelve. He preached, he cast out demons, he did all of the things, he handled the money bag, and then one day he betrayed the Lord all of a sudden. And he was probably one of Peter's closest friends who wrote the epistle that we are learning from today. And, and these are just two examples of people who appear to be faithful from the outside, appear to be Christians, and yet in the end, it is evident that they, their hearts were never true. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 speaks about this difficult topic. It says, they, referring to people who fall away from the faith, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This topic of people falling away from the faith specifically with false teachers in mind, is the subject of our passage today in 2 Peter chapter 2. And it is a stern pastoral warning to flee false teachers, and not just them, but their example as well. So even though we will be learning about the features of false teachers, their warning will be a warning for your souls as well. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would learn to Cherish not only the glorious and comforting parts of Scripture, but also the Scriptures that are filled with warnings and hard sayings. Lord, for we need them. Our souls need warning and correction so that we can learn to cherish Christ all the more. May your word speak and teach us this morning. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In this passage, we will see five uh, features of false teachers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, you would do well to follow along in the home group's helps, which is within your bulletin. So just as a little bit of context, this entire second pa- uh, chapter of 2 Peter is all about false teachers, from the beginning to the end. That's kind of Peter's main point. And if you have your Bibles open, look at chap- verse 1 of chapter 2. He talks about the certainty of false teachers. He says this, In verse 1, 
But false prophets also arose among the people, referring to the Old Testament. Just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter doesn't say a maybe. This isn't a weather forecast, like a 40% chance of rain, 30, something like that. That's not what he's saying. This is certain. This will happen. Paul says something very similar in Acts chapter 20 when he's meeting with the, the elders, the church of Ephesus for the last time. He says this. He says, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Drawing upon the imagery of when Jesus says, wolves in sheep's clothing. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. This topic of false teachers is important for all of us this morning. Why? As Dr. Campbell was saying, this is, this is really an encouraging season of the church. Very sweet time. There's lots of new babies, lots of encouragement, great Bible studies, amazing sun, Sunday school, new people, lots of encouragement. But we cannot grow complacent. We cannot. We cannot become so fixated on the blessings that we forget the one who sent them. Both Peter Paul and Jesus said that false teachers and false teaching will arise among the church. And so all of what we're going to hear today is for your good. It's for our good. So five features of false teachers. Number one, in verse 17, a feature of a false teacher is that Christ is not preached. Christ is not preached. Verse 17 says, these, referring to false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. If you notice, both of these metaphors have uh, water as a part of them. And water really is a a lovely thing. We don't talk about how great water is enough. Uh, Every one of us knows the feeling of you're working hard on a hot day, and you're you're parched, and then you have that cold glass of water. And it's better than anything else. My childhood memory is the hose in the backyard was just like, oh, worth a million bucks on a hot day. So water is a lovely thing. We all agree on that. And in the scriptures, the good news of the gospel is often equated with water. That imagery is used. Jesus in John chapter 4 says to the Samaritan woman by a well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. And even our call to worship brings up this imagery of thirst for spiritual things. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. One of the best ways to understand this deep longing that everyone has to be known and loved by the creator is a spiritual thirst. So when we bring this to what we just read, what does it mean when... When Peter says that these false teachers are waterless springs. It's something that's far off, appears to have water, appears to have promises, but when you come close, it is dry and cracked and empty. Imagine you've been in the desert. I don't know how many of you have been to a desert climate before, and you've been for days without water, and you see a well off into the distance, and you're excited, and you run up to it, only to find out that it's dry and cracked. It promises an end to thirst, 
But all it yields is disappointment. And this speaks to us of a man who talks a lot about Jesus but never preaches Jesus. He might describe Jesus as a good man or an example but never as your savior or your substitute or your king or your God. And the second metaphor he uses is a mist driven by a storm. That might sound confusing but in a more arid climate like Palestine, a mist off in the distance might look like a cloud promising rain. You might get all excited like, oh, we haven't had rain in weeks. Clouds are coming. But once it comes, it doesn't end the thirst. All it brings is confusion and darkness. This is what false teachers are like. There's no substance. All there is is endless questions, endless searching, never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. Friends, people come to preachers because they long for spiritual water. Because water to the parched throat is like the grace of Christ to a thirsty soul. And false teachers have the the appearance of fountains of water. They look like most other people, but they are empty of Christ. All their jargon, words, and fluff cannot conceal the fact that they do not know Christ crucified. You can learn many things at a church. You can learn life lessons, rehabilitation strategies, wisdom in tough times, which are not bad. But the church must primarily be the fountain that never ceases to pour forth the goodness of Jesus and him alone. Friends, beware the preacher who never mentions Christ and the need for the cross. Interestingly, these false teachers are condemned to the same punishment as the angels in verse 4. This gloom of darkness, Peter calls it. And in the Bible, the punishment often fits the crimes. And so it's interesting. These false teachers bring spiritual darkness and confusion, and that's exactly what they get for eternity. So the first feature of false teachers is that Christ is not preached. The second, in verse 18, Christ is not imitated. Christ is not imitated. Look at verse 18. It says, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. To break this, this is a difficult verse. We're going to break this down. And false teachers fail to imitate Christ in three specific ways. First of all, they focus solely on oration. Secondly, they entice people with sensual perversity. And thirdly, they target the weak. So first, they have a massive focus on oratory talent. This is what this phrase means. It says, speaking loud boasts of folly. It literally means they're uttering pompous nothingness. They're saying a lot of words, but no substance. Um, one thing I've come to love to learn about Dr. Campbell is his like shoot-from-the-hip illustration is always either Lord of the Rings or Pilgrim's Progress. Both are great. So as you get to know me as a preacher, I just want to let you know, my two shoot-from-the-hip illustrations are always going to be World War II and Star Wars. And y'all aren't ready for Star Wars yet. So, um, on this point, let me talk about a little bit about who Adolf Hitler was, because it's going to help us understand this. Adolf Hitler was a completely unremarkable man. When he was a young man, he couldn't hold down a job. He had a lot of big ideals. He never made any money. He mooched off his parents' estate. He, couldn't, he failed getting into art school twice in Vienna. Nothing to write home about. But then came World War I, 
something to prove his promise. And so he went to war, and he showed minor acts of heroism and was rewarded for them and promoted a little bit. But still, nothing famous about him. Until after the war, he was still involved with the, the new German army of the Weimar Republic. And while he was in Munich, he was a part of a small political education group. And it was here that he learned his most dastardly skill. In his own words, he said, one night I learned I could speak. He was there in front of a bunch of people, and he realized that he could captivate the senses and the minds of everyone around him. And if you're familiar with the literature of World War II, there are scary stories of brilliant people entering a room entirely in disagreement with Hitler and leaving it, not realizing how they came into agreement with him. He had this dangerous charisma and way with words that you can kind of see when you watch those old like, films of him at the Nuremberg rallies. I say all this to say, an amazing gift of speaking does not equate godliness, ever. Ever. Beware of the preacher who captivates your heart and yet fails to teach you of Jesus Christ. Just a few questions to ask you. What do you value more when you come to a church or listen to things? The message, the method, or the content? Sorry, the method or the content? What do you remember most about sermons? Is it the funny illustration, or is it the main point? I think if most of us were honest, the method often holds sway on us, because we like that. But it should be the other way around. The message is more important, but if the method is beneficial as well, praise God. So firstly, false teachers have a massive emphasis on oratory talent. But secondly, look at the verse. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. To put it bluntly, false teachers entice people to sin sexually. Something they do. And they appeal to the senses rather than to the soul. They appeal to the flesh rather than the spirit. How do they do this? Many different ways. They avoid the topic of Christ's return, right? It's one of the worst sins of the modern church is that people both actively and passively deny that Jesus is coming back soon. They only talk about the goodness and the love of God, never his law or his expectations or the godliness of obedience, They want people to feel good and not have to battle their sin. Most often today, this looks like preachers just avoiding the topic of sin altogether. They speak things that appeal only to the flesh and never the spirit. So thirdly, notice false teachers target weak Christians. So the end of the verse says, They entice those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So basically what Peter is saying is these false teachers, they don't have in mind of leading astray the person who's been a strong Christian for 60 years. They know they won't be able to convince that person. But they have in mind the person who's just saved and doesn't quite understand what faith is, which is scary. This word lure, you could also say entice, it carries like fishing imagery. Like they're casting, they're fishing fishing rod, and they know exactly what they're going for, which is the weak Christians. Paul talks about the same type of person in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, concerning false teachers, he says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins. 
and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. False teachers know that mature, strong Christians will see right through them, but they're not going for them. They're gunning for the newly saved Christian who's barely escaping from the world. So they don't imitate Christ here. Rather than seeking to cherish and protect those who are weak, false teachers target them and feed off of their struggles. It's honestly sickening. But just take a moment with me and think about how how opposite from this Christ was. Christ was marked by such a care and gentleness, not only for women, but for all the weak. He loved them, he cherished them, he taught them, he made them feel safe and heard. And the same applying to the church today, the, the maturity of a church can almost always be measured by watching its love for the weak, for the poor, for the helpless, for those in need. And I long for our church to be the opposite of these false teachers. I pray that Christ Reformed may be a haven for the weak. May we be a place that protects weak women and those struggling with sin. May we imitate Christ in our interactions with the lowly, which by and large I think we do. But there's a lot of room to grow in Christ-likeness. So they do not imitate Christ. And number three is Christ is not obeyed in verse 19. Peter says, they promise them freedom. This is the false teachers speaking to Christians. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. So from the outside, it never looks like this, but it's true. How, how do false teachers promise freedom? They say that freedom comes through sinning, through giving in to your desires, which is the exact opposite of what the scriptures teach. If you remember in the Old Testament when the Lord rescued his people out of Egypt, out of their slavery, there's a second part to that wonderful phrase that we often forget. The Lord says, I will take you out of the house of bondage so that you may worship me. They were freed so that they may obey and follow God's commands. True freedom is found in obedience, not in giving in to your desires. In John 8, verse 34, Jesus says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And one commentator says this. He said, There is no harder or miserable bondage than when desires rule and reign in a man. This is true. This is true. And it applies to all of us. When we want to do right, but we fail to do it, or when we don't want to do wrong, but we end up doing it anyway, that's slavery. That is spiritual slavery. And eventually, everyone who isn't a true Christian cannot hide their addiction, cannot hide their impulses or their sin. It's just not possible. It's their nature. They can for a time, but not forever. But the beauty is that the gospel is so much different than the slavery to sin. The gospel promises that because of Christ, you are dead to your sins. They have no power over you. You are free to be obedient. Now, Satan is the father of lies 
when it comes to Christians. And one of his lies that he loves to whisper into little Christians' ears is, you're you're never going to get past this. There's no change to be found. You're stuck with this sin. You did that again. There's no way that you're actually a child of God. Those are lies from the pit of hell. But I have witnessed them in, in my own life and in getting to know some of you. I have heard people say this, like, say things like, I don't, I don't think I can ever change. I don't know if I'll ever get past this. And I can tell you one thing. There are few things more painful and saddening to hear than to hear a blood-bought, spirit-indwelt son of the living God say, I'm a slave to sin. It hurts. Because the cross looks at your soul and says, you are free. You are set free from that. If you belong to Christ, whatever slavery you're dealing with, it's, it's, it's a lie. It's a feeling. Believe in the cross. Believe in the power of Christ's death, which frees you from your desires, your anxieties, your lusts, your bitterness. Yes, this might take time. But do not submit to the great lie that you will never attain freedom from sin. You are a Christian. That is who you are. The false teachers are slaves to corruption, but not you. You can obey Christ because his spirit lives in you. And notice how Peter addresses this in the second part of the verse with a proverb. He says, whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. And notice how broad this is. Usually when you and I think of addiction or like spiritual slavery, we think of the big ones. Pornography, drugs, sex, money, which is true. But this phrase is far more broad. More than just those things can rule in a person's soul. I have a vivid memory. By the way, I'm a nerd. If that's not obvious, I'm a nerd, and this will become more obvious. I went through a huge phase in in high school where I loved the board game called Access and Allies. My sister's right here. She can attest to that. Um, I played it for hours by myself, right? So that's not getting any better. So when, one time when I was young, I went through a phase where I was playing Axis and Allies with myself for hours, hours upon hours. And one time my dad, I love my dad, he said, Jack, you've been playing Axis and Allies a lot. And you know me, I'm being pompous and trying to find a compliment. I said, well, dad, it's better to be addicted to this than some video game, right? And my Dear sweet father, he looked at me and he said, Jack, you shouldn't be addicted to anything. And I was like, ah, there goes my righteousness. He got me. But the, the, the point is there. Anything in this world can overpower you, not just the big things. So let me ask, what overcomes you? Is it media, YouTube, Instagram, the amount of likes you get? Something might not be wrong in and of itself, but if it overcomes you, then you are acting like a slave and not a Christian. What about cigarettes or drugs? Maybe painkillers. Does it overcome you? Can you do without it? Is it your master? Do you control it or does it control you? What about your work, your busy schedule, the endless list of tasks, maybe your parenting responsibilities? Does it overcome you? Video games, Xbox, board games, word games, X and allies, you name it. 
Does anything other than Christ dominate your thoughts and desires? You see, spiritual slavery exists in many, many forms. And I hope the Holy Spirit convicts you about what has dominion in your life. I hope that your only master may be Christ, and he is a good master. And if he has overcome you, then you belong to him. A Christian really is one who has been overcome, in a sense, by the goodness of God. And it's interesting to note that Peter started off this letter, if you went back to chapter 1, he started off by saying, I am Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ. That punch is meant to be there. False teachers do not obey Christ. They are actually slaves to sin, even though they act like they're in perfect control of everything. Before we move on, I, I just want to give a few words to everyone on the topic of addiction and slavery. First of all, I want to talk to the stronger Christians in the room. If you would consider yourself mature and knowledgeable of the scriptures and in check of your emotions and your desires, then I urge you, bear with your weaker brothers and sisters in their struggle. Show them long-suffering. As long as they claim to believe in Christ, you, should, you must show them patience and love. And one convicting question I often ask myself when I'm interacting with uh, Christians who, like, their struggles bother me because I'm hearing this again and again. I ask myself this, what if God treated me with the impatience that my heart has towards this person? Very convicting. So to the weaker Christians in this room, to those of you who perhaps struggle with faith or have rec- many recurring sins in your life that weigh you down, I urge you, believe in the gospel. If God saved you when you had no success over sin and you were his enemy, why would he cease to save you now that you're striving for righteousness and sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing? If he loved you when you were an enemy, why would he cease to love you now that you're a friend? And to those who are not in Christ, who perhaps don't believe, maybe you look into your soul and all you see is bondage. Perhaps you have a crippling addiction that nobody knows about. Or you hate the way that you can't even control your own thoughts or your desires. I just want to let you know Jesus promises freedom. There is freedom to be found in Christ. A lasting safety for all who hide behind the cross. So Christ is not obeyed. Number four, verse 20, Christ is forgotten. Notice the progression. Christ is not imitated. Christ is not obeyed. Christ is forgotten. Look at verse 20. For if after the false teachers have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So these false teachers, they escape sin, noticeably for a time, but their knowledge is not a saving one because they do not persevere to the end. So what does it mean when Peter says if they're again entangled and overcome by sin? Basically, it means they stop fighting. I one time heard a a great metaphor for the Christian life. It was, in reality, the church is like a group of people that was caught in a riptide and thrust out into sea. 
And they're all waiting there, you know, far enough away that you can't see the land. And they were told by rescuers, like by a helicopter or something like that, like, hey, rescue is coming. They didn't say when, but they said rescue is coming. And the Christian life is really like everyone sitting there treading water, fighting the pull of this world, fighting to not give in. And after hours and hours and hours, some gave up. But those who had faith that rescue was coming kept treading water and never ceased to endure. Persevering in Christ does not mean that you're perfect, but it does mean that you never cease to fight. You and I are at war with sin. Wars have both victories and defeats, but we have a promise, a final victory. Romans 8 has a beautiful verse about being a Christian. It says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, if by the Spirit you are flawless, you will live. No, it says, if by the Spirit you are continually seeking to put to death sin in your life, you will live. John Calvin says this on this topic. He says, the faithful also do indeed sin. But as they allow not dominion to sin, they do not fall away from the grace of God, nor do they renounce the profession of sound doctrine which they have once embraced. They are not to be deemed conquered while they strenuously resist the flesh and sin. So while someone maintains their conviction of the truth of Christ, they should never be cast out as an unbeliever. Now, these false teachers are not true Christians because a true Christian, in the words of Christ, endures until the end. So what does it mean, talking about these false teachers, this is a difficult verse. It says their last state will be worse than the first. Interestingly, these words come almost word for word from a parable that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 12. You can turn there if you would like. Matthew chapter 12 Verses 43 through 45. Jesus says this, this parable. He says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now there's a lot of things in that one passage we could talk about. But essentially the meaning is this. There is no neutrality with sin. One is either putting on this world or they are putting on Christ. And there's no middle ground. Just like in the parable, the house was clean from wickedness, but nothing took his took its place in the same way false teachers might sweep their life clean of visible sin for a time, but they did not replace the void with Christ. Just because someone beats a sin in their life, be it drugs, sex, or addiction, whatever, that doesn't mean that they're better. Sin is of the heart. False teachers deal with the outside of the cup, and it looks convincing, but they have not cleaned the inside. So as an encouragement to you all, I urge you, when you are seeking to battle sin in your life, you cannot just say no to the world. You have to put on Christ. Do you wish to be free from pornography? Don't just say no, 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 all day long. Speak to your soul about Jesus. 
Are you troubled about how much media or your phone controls your thoughts and desires? Don't just say no to it. Read scripture about your God. Are you filled with envy or worry? Do you constantly want something that you don't have? Don't just try to suppress those thoughts you are not able to. Remind yourself of everything you already have in Christ. Or perhaps you're afflicted with worry and anxiety about school or parenthood or work or the future or maybe even death. Don't just attack the thoughts, but replace them with reminders of Jesus' care for you. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things of heaven and not on the things of earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. False teachers have false repentance because they never filled that void with Jesus. Remember the man that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon? I heard after he walked away from the faith and left his wife that he had struggled with the sin of homosexuality for years. Doesn't mean he wasn't necessarily a Christian if you struggle with something like that. But what did he do? He stopped fighting. He gave in. One day he woke up and said, this is not worth it. Which means he did not know who Jesus was. That's what it means to be in a worse state than the first. So the last feature of a false teacher in the last two verses is that Christ is forsaken. Christ is forgotten, which might be kind of a passive thing, but then Christ is forsaken, which is very much an active. Verses 21 through 22. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Um, Many of you most likely have heard of the word apostate. Apostate, it basically means someone who has left the faith. And it comes from the Greek word apostasia, which literally means rebellion or a change of state or abandonment. So one who commits apostasy is one who is numbered with the Christians, like a church member, and then forsakes actively his professed faith. And as I said before, Judas is a perfect example of this. He was numbered with the faithful and then proved himself to have never truly known his Savior. And so this is scary because this section speaks about false teachers, but it also warns you and me. Because this happens to people who perceive to be normal Christians. It says it would have been better if they had never known the way of righteousness. That is hard. This is one of the top ten hardest passages in the New Testament. Things like this. And Jesus says something very similar about Judas. He says it would have been better if that man had never been born than to portray the Son of God. So I ask the question, why? Why would it have been better? It seems harsh. Two reasons. First, it would have been better if they had never known because now their heart is hardened. These people have been there, done that. They've heard grace. They've heard the gospel. Uh, They will now be less receptive to it. 
Repentance is nearly impossible for those who understand the way of God and then leave it. Now what's impossible with man is possible with God, but this is why it would have been better if they had never heard. And secondly, it would have been better because now they face a stricter judgment on the final day. Jesus says these words at one point. He says, To the one who has been given much, much will be required. And that is true of these people who fall away. They have so much knowledge, so much going for them, and then they give it up. And that's, this is, should be convicting to those of us who grew up in church, who have loving parents, who know the gospel, who've been taught our entire lives. God holds us to a higher standard than somebody who's never heard the gospel. So it would have been better if false teachers or these people would have never heard to begin with than to believe outwardly and then fall away. Friends, this is extraordinarily difficult. But we have to remember that in just nine verses in chapter 3, Peter couples this hard saying with one of the most welcoming gospel truths in the Bible. If you go down in uh, chapter 3, I believe it's verse 9, Peter says this, The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all means all. God desires all to be saved, and that includes these false teachers. That includes the person that you know or you remember who f- fell away from the faith. You can, you can feel Peter's pastoral heart here j- just beginning to tear. He longs for these people to be saved. He doesn't just take joy in the fact that they've fallen away from God. No, he, he yearns for them to return, for God to save them. God both condemns the wicked for their sins and yet finds no pleasure in it. Sometimes we Calvinists need to hear that. Because Peter is at the one moment eviscerating these false teachers for what they do, and then the next moment weeping for the fact that they've fallen away. That's a picture of the heart of God. Are you like that? When you see sin in the world, most likely you're quick to condemn, which we should condemn sin. But does your heart weep For the fact that they're slaves? Do you long for them to come to Christ whenever you hear of wickedness in this world? I need to think more like that. Then Peter closes by bringing up two proverbs. First one says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. You and I have likely seen this before. It's disgusting. A dog vomits, turns around, looks at his food, and then turns back to its vomit. It's nasty. And this is a physical picture of how ugly it is for you to turn away from Christ. Some people are cleansed on the outside, but never the inside. They have swept the house clean, if you will, but they have not had Christ dwell in their hearts. The second metaphor about the of the sow wallowing in the mud. I personally have never seen this, but I've heard it's pretty disgusting. Hebrews puts this kind of apostasy in this way. The author of Hebrews says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice for sins anymore, but only a fearful expectation of judgment 
and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who has rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? And so I ask you, because the passage brings this up, what is the state of your heart? Do you trust in something that you do, or do you trust in what Jesus has done? Thomas Schreiner, who's a, um, a professor at Southern Seminary, he says this. He says, false teachers and apostates remind us that walking the aisle, making a profession of faith, Making a decision for Christ or Christian baptism do not ensure a future destiny in heaven. Perseverance is the ultimate mark of genuineness. And this is Peter's goal. He's warning us because he loves us. He's warning us so that we would turn away from the sin that so holds us down and grow in Christ. And the warning is, if you ignore God over and over in your heart, the day will come when the gospel is no longer of any benefit. Jesus himself said, very similar to Peter, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So take heed. I urge you, flee from your sin lest you too be numbered with the spiritually pigs and dogs. May these features of false teachers not describe you. I sorely contemplated ending the sermon right there. But that would be very hard. So I have two quick passages for us to meditate on. Of the goodness of God. First one, John 6, verse 39. Jesus says this. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That is Christ sustaining his people. Second passage Matthew 18, verse 12. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go in search of the one that has gone astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let us take hope In the gospel, what is impossible with man is possible with God. If Christ is yours and you are Christ, you will never be lost. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your whole word. Surely it is the bread of life to our souls. And Lord, some bread is harder to chew on than others. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would teach us of the beauty and the blessedness of warnings in your scriptures, because that's how you save your people, by warning them. May we rest in the gospel and the goodness of our shepherd Christ. I pray this in his name.